You can find data to confirm your hypothesis. Your hypothesis may not actually be true. And I fell into the trap very early on of a confirmation bias. I just became obsessed with all of the things that people type into search engines and what that can tell us about who we are, what we think about, what's important to us. It's really just fascinating. These different diets we've been covering all these years, there's a chance you're gonna lose the weight, but maybe we're not addressing real issue, which is how do we help you lose the weight and keep going? Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I am so delighted to be here today with Bill Tanser for so many reasons. I am so honored to have all of the incredible guests that I have on this show, but sometimes I really connect with them and form friendships beyond the podcast. And Bill has really become that. And what I love about Bill and his work is it spans such an array of cool topics. Not only is he a New York Times bestselling author with two books, but he also founded the company Cygnos, which helps make CGMs, continuous glucose monitors available to the public. You guys know I am so obsessed with this. If anybody has ever created a product or something where they have to deal with reviews, read his book, Everyone's a Critic. I promise it will make you feel so much better about potentially negative feedback or reviews you may get from people. I was really excited to sit down with Bill because I had been on his show. I realized that we really perceive the world a similar way, and I feel like we could talk about anything and everything forever. So I was really curious to see where this episode would go in particular because there are so many topics to cover, and I really love the way that it ended up. I think you guys are going to have a really fun time listening. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash click. So please enjoy. Please let me know what you think in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. You can actually win something from me if you find the pinned announcement post about this episode and then comment on that post something that resonated with you from this episode. Then if you want to win again or give yourself a better chance of winning, check out my Instagram, Melanie Avalon. Also find the announcement post there that I post on Fridays. Again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. And friends, people do not take me up on this. Only a few people usually enter every week on both of those. So you have a really good chance of winning. And what do I normally give away? Usually it is a full-size beauty counter product. More on that later. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. 
Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. 
that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity. If you are using conventional skincare makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up and just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Bill Tanser. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is with a really super awesome person who has become a good friend of mine. We've talked on the phone and through email, and I've been on his podcast. And this man is doing really, really incredible things in the world of continuous glucose monitors, which I know a lot of my audience is pretty familiar with. But something super cool is his background is just very cool. (laughs) It's in all things data and interpreting consumer behavior. And he has two books. He is a New York Times bestseller. So the first one in 2008 was called Click, What Millions of People Are Doing Online and Why It Matters. And then his second book in 2014 was Everyone's a Critic, Winning Customers in a Review-Driven World. And I will say that second book was really helpful for me personally, because I sometimes struggle with reading reviews and interpreting them and knowing how to best use them for my health and sanity. So that that book was really helpful. But what's really cool about Bill is he has such a cool background and I'll let him introduce himself a little bit more, especially after talking to him and being on his show. I feel like we sort of interpret the world 
in a very similar way. And so I just have so many questions to talk about on today's show. But he has been featured as a guest on ABC's 2020. He's been on Good Morning America, CNN, Fox Business News, all the things. So yes, Bill, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I I am so excited for today's show. To start things off, could you tell listeners a little bit about your personal story and what led you to what you're doing today? Like, Have you always been super fascinated with data? Because I don't think like a 10-year-old is like, my passion is consumer behavior. Like, <laughs> you, you know, um, well, maybe, maybe it is. <laughs> you might be surprised. I don't know that the fascination was consumer behavior, but it's as far as I can rem- remember back, I've had a fascination with pattern, finding pattern, finding pattern in, in numbers. It's kind of an embarrassing admission. This is going to be a little bit of a confessional today. To, just to give you an idea of how obsessed I was with like numbers, going all the way back to when I was in high school, I went to science camp. That's kind of embarrassing. I won the talent show at science camp by reciting pi to 200 digits. No, you didn't. I did. Oh my goodness. That makes me so happy. <laughs> and everyone was like, why are you doing this? And I, in terms of like, yep, these kids, other kids were singing, they were doing normal talent things, but I'm like, no, there's something beautiful to pi. And while it's an irrational number and there is supposedly no pattern to all of those numbers, I kind of felt like there was. And I just, I devoted a, a few weeks leading up to the talent show, just memorizing those 200 digits. Can I ask you two questions about that? Yes. One, do you still remember? No. Okay. Two, how do we know pi doesn't end eventually? I don't know that we really know that. I mean, there's there are theories, and uh, as far as we know, it's an irrational number, and by definition, they don't end, but... I'm always open-minded. I never say never, and I never say always, so you never know. Okay. These are the things I think about. Yes. These are the things that keep me up at night, too. But this this is my goal. You know, starting from childhood, I was just so obsessed with finding patterns in things. And my career did start off a little bit strangely for a consumer behavior expert. I, I started off as a prosecutor in the United States Navy. I was kind of an interesting beginning. And... Yeah, I did that for a few years and then was transferred to a naval medical center in in California where I was told I was a hospital attorney, and I did that for a little while, and then got out of the Navy, and while looking for a job as as a prosecutor, I took a job just to make some money to pay rent with an ISP, and this was pre-web, so like 1994. And was selling Telnet and Gopher access to the internet. And that's where the fascination with, wow, there's so much data that's going to be available to people like myself to analyze, to see what we can tell about people when they go online and they use the internet. Actually, I was reading another book yesterday, and it was talking about how the internet, but people were skeptical that it would actually take off because the idea of like a huge data collection thing just didn't make sense, which is so shocking because we can't envision our lives without the internet right now. So did you see that? Like leading up to the internet, did you predict that it would (laughs) 
be what it is today? No. I mean, I'm going to be very honest with you about all of the predictions I've gotten wrong. I did get a lot right, but I, I got a lot wrong. I, I remember using the internet. It was actually, I think I started using it when I was in the Navy. And at the time, it was a version of the internet called Milnet. And I was one of the only ones that would use it on my base. And so to get an email message to Washington, D.C., I had to type my message, download it to a floppy disk, call the communications center. They would send a Jeep to my office, drive it to the comms center, send it <laughs> via Milnet to D.C., and then the round trip was the exact opposite. So it was like a week Almost, you know, as, as long as it takes to send a letter across the country. <laughs> and I thought to myself, there's no way this is catching on. This is crazy. There's nothing, nothing really groundbreaking about this. But then as I started to get into Telnet and go for access, and I, I remember showing people, I think it was recipes for German chocolate cake that you could get on Gopher. I would just go around to random people and say, look what you can get on this computer. You can actually... <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what's crazy? I was Googling German chocolate cake last night. <laughs> That's a true statement. <laughs> I was Googling the difference between German chocolate cake and there's another one that's like chocolate with cherry. Oh, that's the Black Forest cake. Um, let me guess. It's coconut, right? So Black Forest is cherry and then German chocolate is, oh, now I should remember. I think it had like caramel and yeah. But it's just, it's so interesting that, you know, the internet is just such a part of our life. And in your book, Click, appropriately enough, you analyze, you know, what people are actually searching for. I was wondering, because that book was written in 2008, do you still revisit that topic of what people are searching for in the internet and what that means? I do. Now, unfortunately, the data set that I had access to then no longer exists. Just, they... Yeah, they couldn't maintain it. So that that data set, we were, or I was monitoring uh, about 10 million internet users, users US and 25 million worldwide through a, a company that I was a part of. And all that data was anonymized and it was all anonymous as well. That set was sold and then whatever, I don't know what happened, but I think that that data set was closed down at one point. We got all of our data through agreements with ISPs and, their, and using their proxy servers to aggregate and anonymize the, the data. That being said, there is still a way that not only I can, but anyone who's listening can dive into internet searches a little bit. And that's by using a tool that Google has called Google Trends. I haven't used that actually. Oh, so there should be like a, a surgeon's general warning message with this, because once you start, you can go down the rabbit hole. And this is exactly what happened to me right before I decided to right click is I had access to all this data. And my job at the time was to just use this data strategically and help companies market their goods by looking at how people searched on things. And one night, I just decided, I think it, that first dive into the data, I looked at diets and how people searched on diets. And about eight hours later, I realized I hadn't slept and it was time to start the day again. And I just became obsessed with all of the things that people type into search engines and Google specifically and what that can tell us about who we are, what we think about, what's important to us. It's really just fascinating. Like what were some of those things that you learned about who we are? Well, you know, 
It's another embarrassing confession. I became famous for my obsession over prom dresses in the very early days. And when I say that, what I found in the data, I I think at the time we had a client, I can't remember the fashion label that was the client, but they marketed their prom dresses from March to May. And I just happened to be looking at the data and preparing for a presentation that I was going to give to them the next day. And I just used our tool to to look at the time series of searches on prom dresses. And I found it actually spiked in January. And so this particular label was missing out on when girls were actually searching for their prom dresses. And I remember going in to present to them and they looked at me like I was crazy. They said, no, no, anyone who markets prom dresses, no, it's March to May. That's when you buy your search terms. That's when you do your your ad campaigns. And so so I showed my charts. And it turns out that no one in terms of, of advertisers was getting traffic on these terms during that period of time. But yet the internet had changed consumer behavior. And so girls just at the beginning of the new year were actually trying to figure out what they were going to wear in May. And marketers had no idea. And there was this real inefficiency in the market, I found. It wasn't just prom dresses. It, then I expanded to engagement rings. And when people search for cars and you name it, I, I could find an inefficiency in the way that we as marketers thought people searched and how they actually searched. I was really actually interested by you were searching when people search for porn and the implications of that and how it relates to like, wait, Sundays, was Sundays the most? Sunday was the least. Yeah, the, actually at the time, I don't know if this is still true, but Sunday, maybe that we just uh, still have some... Friday was busiest, then Saturday. Thanksgiving was the least and Sunday the least. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, to me, the whole porn thing was fascinating because I had access to this data. Other than search terms, I could actually look at traffic to sites and I knew what was happening in terms of traffic to adult sites, and I could tell those patterns. But then at the same time, it's it's crazy to me that the federal government actually fielded this survey, but they fielded a telephone survey where they're calling up people at home and asking them, do you go to adult websites? And <laughs> based on that research, they I think they concluded that it was like just a fraction of a percent of Americans, because I think it was a U.S. survey, were going to adult websites. Yet my data was showing that it was almost, I mean, it was it was a fair chunk of, of the internet day was devoted to adult website searches. I think you know, what we could see there is just people didn't want to say on a survey, and this is one of the challenges with surveys. And, and here I found another fascinating opportunity is that a lot of market research up to that point was based on calling people and asking them what they did. What people say they do and what they actually do can be different, especially in cases like this. No one wants to admit that they're going on an adult website. I remember I spoke, I had a keynote at a conference. I started this right when the book came out and I asked the entire audience by show of hands, how many people go to adult websites? Does anybody raise their hand? Well, I asked that question over about 10 different keynotes, and they're pretty large keynotes. I would say we were talking somewhere between 10 and 15,000. I only had one guy raise his hand. It was the sound guy at one of the big conferences. (laughs) Yeah. And nobody 
could see him, right? Because he'd be up in the sound booth. He was in the back of the room, yeah. Uh, but that was it. That was it. And then, you know, I'd ask that question, and then I'd show the chart showing not only the volume, but the trends, the fact that Sunday was the least, and that, you know, these days had the highest traffic, and Thanksgiving was the lowest, and people just, uh, you could tell they were just so amused by this little window into how we truly behave versus how we say we behave. Do you know if it was just like a yes or no question or was it a more elaborate survey? Like what days and... It didn't go into days. I believe it was pretty basic and it was just a yes or no. I was just thinking that, you know, let's say it was slightly more elaborate. So people who actually said that they do and tell you which days would presumably be more... Like they would have some sort of character trait probably, like an honesty character trait. I'm just thinking about how when you have a set of data and you talk about this in your book about how you can have correct data, but that doesn't mean that you interpret it correctly. I'm just overwhelmed. My brain right now is overwhelmed thinking about having a set of data and how do you know what factors to consider and what to take into account? And how do you find truth in interpreting data? It's such a great question. And and I would have to admit I stumbled in the beginning because, and here's a problem with massive data sets, that you can come up with a hypothesis And if you've got a massive data set like I had, you can find data to confirm your hypothesis. Your hypothesis may not actually be true. And I fell into the trap very early on of just falling into the trap of a confirmation bias. I had this wild theory. I fell in love with it. I got into the data set, pulled some charts, found the charts that confirmed my hypothesis and called it a day, only to realize later that I was so, so wrong. I remember, and this goes back to, I was, I was writing a column for Time Magazine after my book came out. And this was back in 2008. And there was a recession going on back then. And there was this theory that in tough economic times, women were more likely to buy lipstick because it was an affordable luxury. And this theory actually went back to World War II, that when times were tough during the war, cosmetic manufacturers saw a spike or a surge in lipstick sales. So all I did was go and look in search terms and say, okay, if that's true, I will chart lipstick over time. And sure enough, there was a chart that showed just such a strong correlation between what was happening with the economy is actually a negative correlation and the sale of lipsticks. And I thought proven. And I had typed up my column was about to send it when I thought, you know what, let me just check this one more time. And I looked at the search term and the variations in the search term. And at the time there was a debate happening and it was between Barack Obama and Sarah Palin And at one point, the term lipstick on a pig was used. And that caused this massive search, not on lipsticks, but on the phrase lipstick on a pig, causing this this false positive for my hypothesis. And that, that was really a turning point for my analysis, because at that point amongst my team, I instituted internal peer review, which is... I'm going to come up with a theory. I'm going to pull the data that I believe confirms my theory, but I'm going to give this out to all of you and whoever on my team that could find something that actually refuted my hypothesis, that person was incented to do that. It was kind of a nerve wracking thing to do, but I was so 
happy that we decided to do that because it really brought some rigor to this. So, yeah, I guess the the short answer to your question is that when you're dealing with really big data sets, you just have to step back at times when you think you've found something that confirms what your your beliefs are and see if there's any way of refuting it. And if you can, get other eyes on it because confirmation bias is so strong. It really can blind you. And I guess that's really the spirit of the scientific method, you know, trying to disprove your own theory or hypothesis rather than prove it. So like when creating computer algorithms or AI to predict things, do computers run into that issue? Well, computers probably don't have a confirmation bias, but it's still possible in the engineering of that algorithm to produce something that's maybe not the most efficient way of accomplishing the objective that you have. So I would say not the algorithm itself, but the way it was designed is probably just as open to confirmation bias as the traps that I fell into. Speaking about the the prom dresses and the trends, and you said that basically the internet was affecting consumer behavior. What is the role of people and their trends and their behavior and their searches independently happening organically in the world? And then when it comes together on the internet, how much does the internet change us as well? Like, is it a give and take? Does one affect more than the other? Is now the internet the driving factor for trends? What are your thoughts on that? So the answer is yes. There's this concept that actually crossed over both of my books, and it's an economic concept and also a game theory concept of perfect information. And I would have to give credit to Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner in their book, Freakonomics, first introduced me to this idea. And I think it was in that book, they talked about how the internet had changed some industries. And they use, I think, real estate as one example, that with the advent of the internet, consumers were more and more, they had more more information. And, and that information, when it got to the point that was near perfect information, their argument went, well, is there really need for a real estate agent? There was, because there's a lot of complexity that goes into actually all the paperwork, People can still buy and sell homes by themselves, but the industry did change a lot. I think a better example would be travel agencies, which have almost disappeared. That having all of this information at our fingertips gives us the ability to get to near perfect information. You know, for example, on price of airline tickets. If you're thinking of of you know flying, maybe a trip to London, you can. With just a few keystrokes, compare airfares across multiple airlines. You can do all sorts of things in terms of adjusting days and times and get the best price. You needed a travel agent before the internet existed to do that. There's no way you're going to be able to do that yourself. And the cool thing is the advent of the the internet has allowed us to do things like that. Now, just like the irrational number in, in pi and whether or not that number ever ends, I don't I don't believe, but I could be wrong. I don't. I believe that we'll ever get to truly perfect information. And the the working title of my second book, before we decided to call it Everyone's a Critic, was Imperfect Information. Because as this information builds, you find biases that just start to express themselves in, in information, especially when you talk about reviews. 
in the early days were like, this is so amazing. I can find out everything I want to know about this particular product or service before making a decision. But then I started to realize there's things like fake reviews. There's differences in perception. There's misinformation. There's inaccuracies. There's all sorts of things that will always, I, I believe always, almost always, I just said I would never say always, we almost always are battling to get to that perfect information. I think we'll get close, but there will, will be challenges for us to, be, to get there. And so just to define perfect information, that's basically where you know everything you need to know, right? In order to make a decision. So the economic principle of perfect information, you know, again, assuming things like rational human beings, is that uh, sometimes to make an argument, an economic argument, you would make an assumption, let's say both parties have perfect information, they both know everything there possibly is to know about a transaction, then we can figure out what the appropriate decision should be given that information. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMELANIE to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMELANIE to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I was reading your book while watching Queen's Gambit and I, and I was like, oh, perfect information. <laughs> I was also a member of the chess club while I was, <laughs> of course. <laughs> I love chess growing up. I had a, um, I had one of those boards that you could play. It was a computer and you could play yourself like a physical board. Yes. It was so fun. So we could never have perfect information in interpersonal relationships. Right. Interesting. I, yeah. I, I don't think, again, I would never say never always, but I think it would be difficult to get there just because how complex people are. Because you can never know what the other person is thinking. Right. Even if people are putting out all the information you possibly think they could. You know, there's, other, there's other schools of economic thought, and behavioral economics is really 
grown in, in the last couple of decades. And that, that whole school of thought is fascinating to me. And that is that I'm a big fan of Dan Aureli, and especially his book, Predictably Irrational, is that people do behave irrationally. So even if you have perfect information, you might think you would be able to predict how people behave, but that's assuming that people act rationally. And oftentimes we find they don't. And because of that irrationality, even if you had all the information you possibly could, it's still hard to predict how someone's going to behave. I will say though, for listeners, if you at all have any sort of business or activity or passion or anything that involves engaging with reviews, <laughs> definitely get everyone's a critic because you will feel so much better. And it's so fascinating, some of the the things you talked about. And it, this is things that I think I, like if I hadn't read your book and you had asked me to guess, I think I probably, if I thought about long enough, probably would have guessed some of these things. It's things like a review, like a positive review, but with bad grammar, like does not help compared to a potentially negative review, but with really good grammar in some situations can help. And then you talk about like certain words. What were some of your favorite takeaways that you um, learned writing that book? Well, I think the favorite takeaway, and, and hopefully you got this out of that book, to back up a little bit in the preparation for Everyone's a Critic, I interviewed a couple hundred different business owners. And a similarity across most of those business owners is the m- moment I mentioned reviews like Yelp or Amazon Review or TripAdvisor, the immediate response was, I hate reviews. I hate them because... They're just, they're so inaccurate. People don't know what they're talking about. I just don't read them. And then almost without fail, the person would quote back to me their negative review, a negative review, like verbatim. So it was clear to me that, yes, they did dislike reviews, but they also did read them. And they were, in some cases, paralyzed by some of their negative reviews. So to me, it was just fascinating how much of an effect it had on individuals, I, I would say, especially chefs. Chefs and authors uh, were probably the most affected of anyone. The behind-the-scenes story of why I wrote "Everyone's a Critic" is I, I got a lot of great reviews on Click, but I had like two or three two-star reviews, and I can even remember someone said this book is an exercise in navel gazing on Amazon. There's a couple of other mean reviews. And even though that book did well and it made the New York Times bestseller list and I was like traveling the world on a speaking tour, I was so upset about that one two-star review. I have no idea who this person was, but it stopped me from writing for like two, two and a half years. And so finally, when I decided to write another book, I was talking with my agent and I told her the story and and we both discussed it and we thought, you know what, maybe I should write a, a book about why I stopped writing books after my first successful book. So yeah, I, I think that's like one of my favorite takeaways is that people are just so upset and so affected as I was, as I think you were, even though your your book is awesome, it's it's almost a given that someone's gonna get negative reviews. And to make you feel even better about negative reviews, the better a book does, I found the more negative reviews it should get. That as a book surges in popularity, people want to be contrarians on sites like Amazon when they write a review. There's all sorts of different reasons that people bring to the table when they write a review. 
I hopefully I've helped a lot of business owners by helping them embrace the negative reviews. One of the fascinating things, also a great takeaway for me that I love, there was a study done at NYU where they studied the effect of negative reviews on people's perception of a couple of digital cameras. So I won't go through all the methodology, but in the end, what, what it found was that if there were some negative reviews combined with positive reviews, people were more likely to buy that camera than a camera that had only positive reviews. And here's why I think that is. I think people are smart. When they're reading reviews, if they see all positive reviews, they start to become a little suspicious. Are these reviews real? Did this product or service find a way to get some fake reviews? If I can find some negative reviews that seem somewhat real to me, I'm going to believe the positive reviews more. And you know, I, I, this, I've done this speech so much. Uh, I, I feel like I'm almost a therapist for like chefs when they talk to me about their book. I, I go through these stories and I tell them about how you you should really embrace. Uh, it, chefs are the are the toughest. No one wants to hear their babies ugly. Is <laughs> something I've, I don't know if that's an old Southern phrase or I don't know where I got that from. But yeah, it's 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 a tough thing. No one wants to to hear that criticism, especially about something that you've put so much effort into. You know, in writing a book, it just takes so much, and to have somebody just within a few keystrokes burst your bubble is tough. But as best I can, I will continue to preach that message that embrace those negative reviews because they're probably doing you a favor favor and making your pos- your positive reviews more believable. It definitely made me feel better. So like for my two shows, so this show, the biohacking podcast, and then the intermittent fasting podcast. So this show, well, knock on wood, tends to get very wonderful, supportive, amazing reviews. Like the community is just so amazing, but there are a few there's just a few reviews where I don't know why I I just do not resonate (laughs) with that person. And so this has been a really helpful reframe for that. And then you also do address, this is what I always struggle with. Like if you should ask for reviews or not, what are your thoughts on that? No, you can make it known that your review, your business thrives off of reviews. That's uh, an effective strategy. So you know, whether it's on a website or in a store putting up stickers or, you know, just something that lets people know that reviews are important to you, that's okay. But going out and asking for the review, I find doesn't really work that well. What I do find, another thing that works well, and one of my favorite stories, I had the opportunity to interview this locksmith in New York. He had the strategy of doing something extra for his clients, for his customers. And his little extras were just so impressive. People couldn't help themselves but wanting to review. So one of the stories he told me is like, you know, I I get these calls to come out, you know, someone locks themselves out of their apartment. And I'll always bring a can of WD-40 up with me to the apartment. And as soon as I I get them into their, their place, I say, you know, I hope you don't mind, but I'd love to go with you through your apartment and just oil all the hinges on your door so they don't squeak. And this is no, no charge. I just love to do this for my clients. So he does that. A simple thing takes him maybe two or three minutes in a New York apartment. And people who've wanted to oil their hinges forever but just never got around to it and had squeaky doors everywhere were just so impressed they had to give him 
a positive review. It is no coincidence that his girlfriend was a concierge at the Four Seasons. And I think she gave him this idea to do this. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to be the Four Seasons of locksmiths. And that's how he approached every job that he did. And he told this really touching story that he was, he went out on a call and this woman had locked herself out of her apartment and her grocery bag, she had gone shopping and came back and couldn't get back in, but her grocery bag had broken and this really expensive tea that she bought had the, has like in a little glass jar had fallen out and broken. And so he got her back into the apartment took note of what the tea was. After he finished the job, he went to the store, found the tea, brought it back to him. It cost him like 10 bucks. It's expensive for tea, but you know, it's 10 bucks. And he handed the tea and he's like, here, I just wanted to make your day a little bit better and, and left. And of course, she couldn't do anything but write a positive review. And it's little things like that. You know, it's like the amuse-bouche that you get in a, a five-star restaurant before a prefix dinner. It's like, Think about those little things you can do. Even authors can do things like that, like providing channels where people can ask questions and find ways to interact with your audience and help. There, there's a way to do it in almost any business or any type of service. I hadn't thought about that before, but with the Muse Boosh, like when that happens at a restaurant, I'm like, oh, they're giving me something special for me for free. Like, <laughs> Yeah. It, some of my some of the businesses that I, I talked to, I, I provided them free copies of the book. And even like they're almost like fast casual restaurants. They were deciding to do a muse bouche for their customers. Like just come out and say, Hey, we're we're testing out this new thing. We just want to give you a free sample. And people just lit up and their positive reviews soared just by doing finding a little something to do for somebody. It was pretty cool because you wrote that book in 2014. Because Instagram, when did Instagram really take off? Your analysis of the like Amazon reviewers sort of felt like foreshadowing of today's influencers in a way. You were just talking about how people review and, and the motivations. And I feel like the influencer trend wasn't quite what it was then. It was not, no. Yeah. But I was like, oh, this he's like, he's on to something. <laughs> It was so fascinating to me, not just not just the influencer part, but we'll talk about that. So let's talk about that first. Is I found the guy who was the number one reviewer for Amazon at the time. And I interviewed him. I think he at the time he was living up in Seattle. And what I found was that the according to him, there was this competition amongst the top ten that they were just trying to get more likes of their reviews and they're doing they're all sorts of gamification. They're actually downvoting their their other top tens reviews when they saw them to try and knock those people out of the number one position. It was like a game to them. But this one guy, he became a market mover. So if he gave a negative review to like a new kitchen appliance that was on Amazon, the CEO of that company would call him up and say, please reconsider your review. You're killing our business. And it's amazing to me to have that much power. And I, this guy was a sound engineer and he just kind of fell into this and, and it became like an obsession of his. I think I followed up with him after the book came out and he had gotten divorced because his wife couldn't take all of these free goods that were being shipped to the house, there were boxes everywhere. You couldn't even move. And he he lost himself in the obsession over reviewing and being number one, which 
it to me it was just fascinating. I never thought at the time of some of the motivations behind why people write reviews. And that was a real eye-opener for me. So I continued and I actually came up with different personas as I interviewed more and more reviewers. I found like the elite Yelpers that did it for status. There was a, a woman that I interviewed also in the Northwest, and she wrote reviews almost like a literary exercise. It was an outlet for her to write very poetic things, and, you know, not, not what you'd expect at all. And a guy in the Bay Area who just wanted to review everything. He, re- he posted reviews of his lawn. You know, he gave his lawn like two stars because <laughs> there's brown patches. I mean, just crazy stuff. It's, and it, the, I think the takeaway for me was that everyone comes to review, both the reader, but more importantly, the people writing reviews, they come with their own agenda. And that's one of the things that kind of gets lost when we as the business owner or the author look at our reviews and we can't understand why that person had that perspective or wrote what they wrote. It's because people are imperfect. People behave irrationally. People have different perspectives and different goals. And you just have to realize that. I remember, because I remember where I lived. And so it probably was around that time of like 2014. And I remember seeing the Amazon reviews. And I remember a moment like where I was looking at the reviews and I was like, this could be a thing. I was like, if I actually put in time and like did reviews every single day, because I saw, I would see how they would have the top reviewers. And I was like, oh, I want to be a top reviewer. But I was like, oh, it's not worth it. Like the, the time, <laughs> the time investment, but I saw it as something that could be, I guess, a source of power. And then now the way it's manifested, I think today is with like the influencer world. Yes. And I, but I think that world's evolving. So I think it took off and, and, Influencers, you know, initially had a lot of power. They some of them still have a lot of power, but now I think the populace is starting to recognize that a lot of influencers come to the table with an agenda, be it to push a product because they're getting paid to do so, or they have their own perspective on something that may not match theirs. And so I think there's probably going to be another evolution of the influencer category that will make some influencers either change their game or they'll probably wane in their popularity and and others that might be more transparent about their perspective or provide more value add that we're getting from current influencers. I think it's going to evolve and it's it's going to be different in a few years from now. Oh, that is interesting because I identify as an influencer. And for me, it's been so, so important to what you were speaking to about, I guess, trust. Like I really (laughs) can only put my name behind things that I, you know, personally use and obsessed with. And that's just been the main thing for me. And I think that's why everything has resonated so well with my audience. The trend that you're predicting, what are you predicting that it will look like? I think there's going to be a reckoning in in terms of people not willing to follow those that are are very motivated by just making a buck in terms of pushing product versus the individuals that provide a perspective and are, are more true to giving airtime to things that they truly support and use themselves. I think that's going to be the change. And it's it's happening already. 
And it's funny, I never really, I never really thought of you as an influencer. I thought of you more as a super connector. But yeah, I mean, there are things that you do as an influencer, but as an author, I you know maybe put you in a different category because you do have a a clearly defined perspective. You've got a body of work and just fascinating content at the same time. And I think I, I would put you in a different category than someone who's just pushing goods without an agenda other than to just increase a bank account. I guess that is the next, yeah, like you said, the next manifestation. But as far as like the influencer goes, like I'm approached by brands, I mean, pretty much daily. And so then I'm making a decision of what to influence my audience, (laughs) but it's mostly all knows. It's normally things that I was using first and I'm obsessed with. So But yeah, I will be very curious to see how it all goes. A topic that you touch on in, I think it was in Click, and it's a topic that sort of ties in where you and I are right now, time-wise, it's the new year, although when this airs, it will not be the new year anymore. But um, the new year and then going to diet and fitness, because I'd love to talk about Cygnos. But what is the concept of false hope syndrome? Oh, I love this syndrome. So let me give you the backstory behind why I decided to talk about it. So one of the first trends that I noticed when I dove into this massive data set, I think I mentioned it earlier, the first thing I charted was people searching on diets. And the pattern was just so amazing in terms of how it repeated that I could look back. And now I've even done this on Google Trends. And I I would suggest your audience, if you want to go down the rabbit hole, go to trends.google.com and type in diets and choose the maximum timeframe. I think you can go all the way back to 2004. And look at the pattern on people searching for diets. The peak is always the same every single year. And I think you might be able to guess what that is. Searching for diets? Yeah, what, what day? Is it January 1st? Always. doesn't matter what day of the week the new year falls on, but that will be the peak. And that peak only lasts five days. Every single year, that that peak will drop off by 30-40% by the 6th of January. And up until a small glitch, the low point was always the same every single year. Up until a glitch? Yeah, a little glitch. But can you guess what day? Thanksgiving. Yes. The glitch was when The Biggest Loser was airing the week. They aired their finale the week of Thanksgiving, which caused an increase in diet searches. Interestingly, not on exercise, just in diets. But then as I looked at the pattern, there's other little minor trends that happen. Like there's a little bump right before spring break, a little bump right before summer in diets. And every single year... It repeated over and over and over again. Then when I looked at the search term variation, so I could look at the peak on January 1st, and I could look at all the way people searched, I found in my searches that some of the diets and the way people were searching and where they were going, the diets' claims were getting more and more aggressive. Like, you can lose 10 pounds in a month. You can lose 10 pounds in 14 days. Lose 10 pounds in a week. You can lose 10 pounds tomorrow. And I just thought to myself, this something to this, why are these claims by these diets getting more and more outrageous? And that's when I stumbled upon Janet Polivi and her studies around false hope syndrome. So what she was trying to study was the same thing I was trying to get my head around, which is why do people fall for these diets that have outrageous claims? 
And so she conducted the study up at the University of Toronto, divided women, I think she only studied women for this particular trial, divided them into three groups. The study was two parts. So first part, these three different groups, each group was shown a different ad. It was lose 12 pounds in a week, lose six pounds in a week, and lose two pounds in a week. So all they were done, all that was done with these groups is they were handed an ad and asked to read it. You too can lose 12 pounds in, in a week. The next part of the study is they brought these women into a room and there was a big plate of chocolate chip cookies. And they were asked to do a taste test and review the cookies. What she did was after all the groups left, the plates of cookies were weighed from the group that was told, told the most outrageous claim of lose 12 pounds in two weeks to six to two. The one that was given the most outrageous claim, their plate weighed the most, meaning they ate the least cookies. And it, the middle group was the middle, and the group that was told they could only lose two pounds in a week ate the most. And her conclusion from this is that diets that give us our outrageous claims kind of give us this sense of empowerment in the beginning that, wow, you know, I, I feel like I'm in control. And the women who were in that first group ate the least because they were empowered by this idea of losing that weight. But what she found was that as that weight doesn't come off like promised in that period of time, or if the diet was unsustainable, those people would fail on that diet. And even more interestingly, in subsequent studies, she found those people are more likely to repeat the pattern the more they failed. And that was the, the beginning of false hope syndrome and something that I still think is really important today, especially you know, after the new year, just thinking about what's happening in the diet industry. I think there's actually some positive changes that are happening now, finally. There are still some outrageous claims, but I think the, the positive angle of what's happening is we're starting to move away from diets, which I think has been a long time coming. Hi friends, an incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. 
It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Just to play devil's advocate with that example. So people who are presented with an extraordinary claim are more likely to, in the beginning, you know, adhere to it. Would that argue for like a stair-step approach where you make extraordinary claims that are only supposed to last like a week and then you plateau and then you make another claim and go a week and then plateau? Like, is there a way to hack that where it would actually work? Yeah. Can we, can we keep these people going? That's a great question. I haven't considered that. I, I feel almost like Lex Luthor even thinking about the idea. I don't know that I'd want to do that, but yeah, maybe there is. Maybe... Huh, fascinating. Someone should study that. The study I'm thinking of in context with this is, and I'll have to find it, but it was on, and it might actually be what you were talking about. It was on people following extreme diets and they were, I think it was looking at long-term weight loss and the most effective trend was not like moderation for this long period of time. It was actually really extreme in the beginning and then not extreme. Like that was more effective because people were better at being really intense in the beginning rather than having to be moderate for a longer period of time. So I'm just wondering if there is like a way to hack this. Yeah. As I try and switch to a more positive viewpoint of that question, uh, this is something that we should solve. I I do have issue with being extreme in the beginning, but as uh, one of our advisors, Dr. Sunil Kolawad, said to me in a, one of the episodes on my podcast, he's, he's an epidemiologist at UCSF. And he said, look, I can get anyone to lose weight. I can actually get them to lose quite a bit of weight. The challenge is keeping that weight off because actually the quicker that people lose the weight, 
the more likely are that they are to gain it back and and even gain back plus what they had had lost. So the challenge that's been facing the the diet industry is how do we provide some lifestyle changes to individuals that not only help them lose weight but give them that long term success where they they keep the weight off. And that's why I've been so excited. Just this this last year, started to see this trend towards things like intuitive eating. And there's that Wall Street Journal article that came out the the first week of the year about the undiet or the non-diet. That there's does seem to be some skepticism now amongst the at least in the popular press that hey these these different diets we've been covering covering all these years that there's a chance you're going to lose the weight, but maybe we're not addressing the real issue, which is how do we help you lose the weight and keep it off? Was that question what led you to found Cygnos solving that issue? That that is so. I'm a co-founder of Cygnos. So my my co-founders Sharon and Pierre started a little bit before me, actually coding up the idea. But I, I met uh, my co-founder Sharon, who, who I know from previous previous venture. I met him uh, up in San Francisco when I traveled up there back in the beginning of 2020, before the pandemic started. And ironically, we went out to this pizza restaurant and had tons of pizza and bread and wine and <laughs> dessert. It was a very carb-heavy meal. And Sharon was telling me at the time, he said, I- I'm going to found this new company, and I have this idea about how we can use CGMs to help people lose weight. And what was happening in my life, just to give you some backstory, I had been trying to lose weight for a while. I was about... At the time, I'd lost 20 pounds, but I was still 10 pounds overweight. And I had seen a new doctor. She did a cholesterol test, and she's like, your cholesterol is way out of whack. And I just married a vegan. So the question was, okay, I'm eating vegan, and my cholesterol is really high. So she sends me to get this cardiac calcium scan, and it comes back off the charts. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. 440, I think. And like a good number is between zero and two. Wow. Yeah, or zero and five. So it's very, you want very low numbers. And so <laughs> this is the wake up call for me. I go into Cedar Sinai to do a stress test because they want to make sure I just don't drop dead at some point. So I'm in there. It's a reclining bike doing a stress test. I'm hooked up to an EKG. They've got an ultrasound machine ready to you know take a look at my heart. And as the test starts, this attending physician comes in with about 20 residents and interns in tow. And they're surrounding me in a circle as I do the stress test. And the attending says to all the residents, he's like, he starts off his little speech by saying, this is the guy we've been telling you about. I'm like, oh, that's never a good sign. (laughs) He then continues and says, he looks really healthy. He engages in a lot of athletics, but look at this cardiac calcium score. And they're all flipping through the pages that they have. And you hear some like kind of gasps and a little bit of disbelief. I'm like, wow, I got to really fix this. The stress test came out fine, but still I, I met with my cardiologist. And he's like, yeah, you're, you're doing great. Just lose another 10 pounds. But for the life of me, I couldn't do it. And I tried a lot of diets and this idea of, Turning my eye towards data, which I loved, was just so exciting. I was like, I got to do this. I got to do this. I'll do this for myself, but I think there's something here. 
that I could help, just not myself, but anyone else who's trying to lose weight to, to become healthier, trying to maybe control their glycemic responses. Maybe someone's pre-diabetic. There's, I think, help out there by opening up this technology, which up until this time has really been only available to type 1 and now type 2 diabetics and slowly through the companies that are coming out now, people that are pre-diabetic and and want to use it for performance are now just getting access to CGMs. I thought that there's there's definitely a use case here to help those people out. Just hearing that calcium artery score, because I've been recently, I don't know, the whole cholesterol, plaque, diet heart hypothesis is so hotly debated. And one of the things I've been listening to or learning about recently is how like, cause a lot of people who are on keto diets, but with high cholesterol numbers will say that they have like a negative or like a clean calcium artery score. But then I was reading how, and this is why I was so shocked by your numbers. I was hearing how like most people, even if they are trending that way, when they're, you know, in their thirties are going to have normal calcium artery scores. Like it's whoever I was listening to was saying that it's not really a good indicator because it could be bad, but you just don't normally see it until way later. So the fact that yours was that high and you're, you know, at your age, that's really intense. That must have been quite a moment. Yeah, it was. And I, I think there there may be some reasons for it where some people can eat a keto diet and not have a problem. I think there there is a genetic component, probably. To this, I think so too. Yeah, but I, I, I urge people to just be cautious in, in terms of anything that involves eating a lot of saturated fats. You might be fine with it, but it's a conversation you should have with your doctor before you go too deep into something. How did you first get a CGM? So, my first—I don't know if I should be admitting this—but my my first CGM I actually got like on the black market, sort of. <laughs> Yeah, like it falling off the back of a truck kind of thing. I think it was on Amazon. It was a third-party seller, kind of buried really deep. I found this guy who was reconditioning old transmitters and then like had some sort of hack on how you could get the sensors. Because I talked to my primary, and, and she said, you don't really need a CGM. I'm like, yeah, I, I kind of do. I really want one. I love data. And she wasn't swayed by my I love data story. So here I am getting this black market CGM that was like a recondition. It's kind of scary to think about going back that I'm using this reconditioned CGM. But yeah, that's how I got the first one. Like, how did you get the data from it? Or did he have a program? So yeah, we we had already been building the program. So uh, Sherman, Pierre, and, and at this time... You used it with your program. With our program. So yeah, so this was a Dexacom CGM. So they did have their own, but you know, it didn't it wasn't really built for the purpose that we had in mind. It was more built to help diabetics manage their glucose and know when they needed a bolus of insulin and when they needed to be concerned if their their glucose was going too low. It was it's a very specific use case and and our idea was to take this technology and use it in a way that we could help people lose weight. So this is a big question I have, because I'd love to hear more about the actual programming and data analysis. And I'm assuming there's machine learning with Cygnos learning from data. So before you actually have users, how do you program the programs to... So for right at the beginning, before there are any users, do the programs have any 
thoughts or assumptions, or do you have to have users using it for an extended period of time before the artificial intelligence starts making conclusions? Like, what does that timeline look like? Yeah, yeah. And we we actually used ourselves as guinea pigs in the beginning. And myself, along with with Pierre, our, other engin- our engineer, I'm not really an engineer, I'm not an engineer at all, but we, we worked on some ML algorithms and some, some artificial intelligence to look at our own individual responses. And that's been one of the guides for us. And I know you and I are both huge fans of the study that was in Cell back in 2015 from the Weizmann Institute about personalized and precision nutrition. It's this idea that everyone's different. So yes, there, there probably are some learnings we can make from the population, but where we probably needed to focus was an individual's response to foods. So the way this algorithm worked in the beginning and the way we've continued to build it out is it looks at each individual and their responses to foods. And then based on those responses, tries to predict how they're going to respond to other foods. And over the, you know, we're getting into, there'll be two years we've been working on this a little bit more. It's gotten surprisingly accurate and how we can take just an individual's data and how they respond to some foods and see how well we can predict what the response is going to be to something else. So to clarify, when a person uses it, what percent of the predictions are based all within this one person compared to taking into account other people? It's almost exclusively the individual. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, there, there is some that we feed from the, the population, especially in the, the early days, but it's as it builds we recognize that people are different and they respond differently. And that has to be taken into account when you predict their glycemic response. And we we decided also to build two different things. It wasn't just the response to food. The other idea was, okay, let's say that you have eaten something that's going to spike your glucose. We can, by giving you an exercise test and monitoring how exercise impacts your glycemic response, we can write an algorithm that would give some type of prescription for what type of exercise you needed to do to mitigate a spike. So that's the second half of, okay, I just ate this piece of chocolate cake. If I got on my treadmill and did like a zone two workout for 30, 40 minutes, I could completely negate that spike. You're mentioning that cell study. Are you finding similarities and trends with the foods that people react to, or is it pretty much just all over the place? There are some very basic similarities, like things like added sugar that we found that for almost everyone. And there's the, I, I had this great conversation with our mutual friend, Rob Wolf, and he was pointing out to me in that study, there was actually somebody who had pure glucose that didn't spike as much on the glucose as a food that contained an equivalent amount of carbs. So, you know, even that, that there are some exceptions and people are going to respond a little bit differently, but there are some, some basic things like there, there is a correlation in simple carbs. There's also a correlation with some processed foods with the quality of sleep. Those things are some commonalities, but there's still within that there are differences. And this this is actually where I thrive is in those differences because what I want our members doing and what I encourage them doing and what we do already with our staff is to experiment with their CGM. 
we just finished uh, an experiment that we did internally. And this is very low end, so it's not really scientifically or statistically significant, but it's eye-opening in and of itself, is we decided to test apples amongst our group. And I don't know if you know this, but there are 20,000 different varieties of apples. 20,000? 20,000. So many. So many. And so I had an apple very early on when I first put on a CGM and I spiked. I went from like 90 to 150 and I thought, that's it. I'm not eating apples anymore. And then I was having a conversation with our, one of our nutritionists, and she had this idea of, well, you know what? There's all these different apples out there. I wonder if we might react differently. So I challenged everyone in the company to go out and buy as many apples as they can. So I go to Whole Foods, and like just walking through produce, I noticed there's like 14 different varieties just in this one store. And I buy every one of them. And over the next like couple of weeks, every morning, instead of having a breakfast or doing my one meal a day, I'm breaking my fast by doing an experiment because it's like the best time of day for me, at least to do early morning, right when I wake up, eat something, measure a response. So I'm measuring my response to an opal apple, to a gala, to a cosmic crisp, to an envy, you name it, I'm testing it. And the responses ranged wildly from an impact of like plus 50 to the Arkansas black, which I couldn't even discern a spike for the first one that I ate. And then as the results started coming in from the team, everyone on the team had different responses to the same varieties. So there was no correlation between us on the different apples. And even when we averaged the mean out, it was all different. It was kind of like that Weitzman study and sell, everyone was responding differently to this apple. So that was the eye-opener. But you know what really got me excited? And this also got me excited about just N, N equals one experiments, is that I noticed with myself and the entire team, I didn't plan this, but we were becoming mindful eaters. Like the conversation on our internal message board was, you know, I spiked to this on this specific apple, but I found it a little bit grainy and I really like the texture of this apple. And someone responded back, no, no, you got to try this apple because it's like, it's just the right amount of sweetness. It's got a little bit of tartness. The whole team was becoming like really, really mindful about apples. And it almost became like an obsession for us. So first of all, we didn't want to have like cookies or something in the afternoon. If we could get our glucose down and we wanted to do a second experiment in the day, we were turning to apples to, to test them. But just the thought of becoming so thoughtful about a food versus I can remember back pre-Cygnos, I would just go to the market and throw any old apple in my cart. And not really think about it. Now I'm like really, really thinking about food. And I think that's something that happens when you go down this path of experimenting with food is that hopefully you're also becoming very mindful about your body, how your body reacts to foods, how your body reacts to other things. And through that path, that mindfulness is only going to help you become healthier. 
Hi friends, I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours and it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. 
Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Did you find when you were trying the different apples, when you fit into an apple, did you have a sense that you thought it was going to spike more than another apple or was it a surprise? I, in the beginning, I thought I did. And it was actually the tartar apples for me spiked me more. And I thought it would be like the more, more modern bread apples that were bred to be sweet, like Cosmic Crisp would spike me the most. But Granny Smith would really spike me. For me, and this, didn't, this wasn't true of the whole team, heirloom apples did really well on my system. So going to the farmer's market and getting like that Arkansas black, which is an apple that dates back to the 1800s and really hasn't been bred to be sweet, that did really well with my system. Or finding other apples at the market, at the farmer's market, tend to do a lot better than what I was getting at the supermarket. I'm prepping right now to interview Dr. Rick Johnson. He's one of the go-to experts on fructose and he has a book coming out called Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. But he talks all about the different enzymes for metabolizing fructose and the liver, like because they're all over. They're in the liver, they're in the intestines, and they have different effects. And I just wonder if it goes down. I mean, I'm sure there's so many factors, but I wonder what role like people's individual, you know, glucokinase or fructokinase enzymes is playing or their gut bacteria. Yes. That is such a such a great question. I don't know if you've been talking to Rob since since he and I talked, but we had this exact same conversation because when you look at an apple, they're going to have different amounts of sucrose, glucose, and fructose. Fructose can fake you out a little bit because it's metabolized almost exclusively in the liver or exclusively in the liver. It, it's probably not going to hit the bloodstream until the liver decides to convert what it has back in from glycogen into glucose at some point. So that complicates things a, a little bit. But yes, I, I think that's one of the things that as we continue this and I get more data from the member base is looking at specific apples, their composition of different sugars, the way those sugars are metabolized. I think that's going to be really interesting to follow. Yeah. One of the coolest takeaways from his book about fructose was they figured out that, have you read his book or do you know him? I have not. I know him. I know of him, but I have not read his book and I'm writing down notes because I have to get him on my show. I will connect you to him. I was emailing him yesterday. One of the most fascinating experiments he talks about is the enzyme that breaks down fructose in the liver, they think is the one that determines metabolic syndrome. So if you're breaking down fructose in the liver, it's creating metabolic issues, but it doesn't affect actually cravings. That's the intestinal fructose enzyme. So if they block your intestinal fructose enzyme, you lose your cravings, but you would still get metabolic syndrome. If they block the liver, you would still have cravings, but not get the metabolic syndrome. I might've said that backwards. Regardless, <laughs> regardless, like where the location is determines cravings versus 
metabolic issues. It's fascinating. Yeah, I'm guessing if if that fructose gets stored in the liver, that's where you're going to run into a metabolic syndrome. Yeah, yeah, which is so fascinating because if you turn to the glycemic index, it will tell you that you know something like agave is a very low glycemic index sweetener, and so because it's like all fructose. <laughs> yeah, my mother-in-law. Oh, I hope she doesn't listen to this. She's Hungarian, so she says agave. She she just overdoses on agave because she saw somewhere that it was a very low glycemic index, and she's trying to lose weight. So she's like, she's like, puts agave on everything. And I'm like, don't do that. <laughs> it's just, it's almost pure fructose. All these foods are so fascinating. The way our body reacts to them, even more fascinating. So your overall data set and what you're learning with Cygnos, do you think there's not necessarily an issue, but does it self-select for like healthy user bias? Like, does it self-select for a certain type of people? Do you think that the overall data would be different if it was a population-wide CGM experiment? I, I don't think so. Again, you know, going to our algorithm, it's it's really personalized. So there should be no bias in the type of person. You know, that being said, our first customers included a lot of biohackers. And now more and more, we're getting more members that are just coming to us for weight loss. So they are different sets. As I look at the data, though, across both those two different groups, I'm not seeing much of a difference in terms of, of how people are seeing different foods affecting their glucose. I mean, there, of course, is going to be some difference for someone who's more fit, or more athletic, which is a, another fascination of mine, which is how different forms of exercise affect your circulating glucose. That That's just fascinating. My latest obsession. Have you seen alcohol too? Yeah. So here's, a, here's another great example of almost coming up with a faulty hypothesis. So I had my, my niece was over. She's, I think she's 10 now. And I always make pizza for her. I make like a homemade pizza, roll out the dough, everything. And she's got a lot of energy. So I usually have a glass or two of wine when she's over and I'm making the pizza. So the first time I did this, I was like, okay, I had two glasses of, uh, of this Italian red and I didn't see any spike at all in my glucose. Wait, I've stumbled upon the cure for, for like, glucose spikes from carbs. And while I didn't put it together, other people on the team were were finding the same thing. When they had some alcohol, they didn't see a spike. But when we looked at our data after doing a a lot of repeats, and it didn't take much to twist my arm and do a repeat on this, but what we found was that the glucose still spiked. It just, the spike was several hours after the meal versus what I usually have, which is a spike that starts about 40 minutes 50 minutes, depending on the food. And I think this is an issue of oxidative priority. So your body has to metabolize the alcohol first, can take a little bit of time. That delays the metabolism of some of the other macros that you've consumed, specifically the carbs, and that spike is delayed. It's been so interesting to follow that. Uh, I think I still will have wine, especially after reading your book. I'll still be having my nightly glass of wine, but... I won't be fooled anymore to think, okay, this is my free pass to have as much pizza as I want 
because now I know to look to see that spike, which, you know, if, depending on if you have two or three glasses, sometimes that spike can like happen in the middle of the night, which we don't want. We don't want to be experiencing glycemic spikes in the middle of the night. It's sleep disruptive. It's not a good thing. For users signing up for Cygnos, the actual user experience, is it, I'm assuming a two-week is it a two-week program based on the CGMs, or how does it work? And no, no, I mean that's as long as you're getting results. This is where we differ from some of the other companies that are out there. There's so many learnings you can get from this device. I put my my first CGM on in I guess it was like February of 2020. I've won almost continuous. I've worn one almost continuously to now, and still I'm I'm finding learnings. So it's as long as you're getting results. We encourage you to continue to use it. Two years now, you've been wearing one? For me, yeah. I'm sure people may not go that long, but I've found ways of you know not just losing the weight. So that 10 pounds that I wanted to lose to satisfy my cardiologist, I lost that in the first month, I think, mainly just from making a tweak to my oatmeal and taking out the bananas, adding a nut butter, flaxseed, and hemp hearts. Uh, a couple other things. But yeah, I, I've engineered all of my meals, but now I'm using it more in terms of athletic performance. So during this pandemic, I started my adventure on my rowing machine. It's amazing what incensed me to, to do things, but I have this concept to rower. And as soon as I got my machine, I saw on their website that you could get a free t-shirt if you rode a million meters. This is the type of thing I do. They put something out there. I'm like, I want it. Like, it's so stupid. <laughs> it's like, what? A free t-shirt? <laughs> I rode 10,000 meters for like 100 days in a row to get my, t- my t-shirt. <laughs> That's what I would do. <laughs> oh, man. I love that. I love that. Oh, I was just going to say, I think one of the most valuable things for me wearing a CGM I'm not encouraging people to go crazy while wearing a CGM, but if you do wear CGM and you do have a moment where you eat something that you probably thought was not good for you, seeing that crazy spike is so powerful because even then when you don't have the CGM in the future, you know, like if you see those foods again, you're like, oh no, I I know what that does to me. Having that knowledge is something you can't really have otherwise. Like you can't actually see so I just think the data is so powerful for user change. That is so true. Yeah, for me, go back to when I was trying to lose those last 10 pounds, the only feedback loop I really had was how my clothes are fitting and what the scale said. And there are so many confounding factors that you know to try and make a change to what I was doing based on those two feedback loops was nearly impossible. But to see within a few minutes after eating something, what my glycemic response was, it was amazing. It was like, wow, okay, so here I've got this, this massive spike. Let me reverse engineer what was happening there. What can I do about that? Can I, should I just eliminate that food? Do I talk about food order, food combinations, food substitutions? It's, it's very empowering to have that kind of information and then to see the next day when you eat that exact same food and you do something like either exercise immediately afterwards or you do what I did and reverse engineer your oatmeal, your morning oatmeal, to be more glycemically friendly, to see that and then to see that translate into what's happening on the scale and how well your clothes are fitting. It's, 
I, I think that's the point. When I when I first started at Cygnos, I, I told Sharon I, I was going to be an advisor to his company like I was at his previous. And after seeing myself go from that massive spike from my oatmeal and then reverse engineering it the next day and not having any spike at all, I called him up and said, I'm, I'm coming full time. I'm not going to even give you a decision in this. So find a place for me. I need this and I, I need to keep doing this because it's just so empowering. Well, that is absolutely incredible. I'm so grateful for what you're doing. And this is perfect because the last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Wow. You know, I I actually have a gratitude practice. So my morning meditation is gratitude. And surprisingly, when I started it, I didn't think I, you know, after a few days, I'd be able to find things to be grateful for. But every single day, I find new things to be grateful for. Uh, if you were to ask me one thing, I would have to say my amazing, beautiful wife, you know, to be in this pandemic and to like have to work from home and, you know, do everything in this, this house. It's just so, I'm so grateful to be partnered with her. But I'm also grateful for all of my friends. I'm grateful for my new friends. Grateful for you, Melanie, and the fact that we got introduced and I can be on your show and you could be on mine. So I'm just overflowing with gratitude. I love it. The same here. I'm just, I'm so grateful for your work and what you're doing and just everything. This is such an amazing resource that really gives agency to people. And I cannot thank you enough. And so for listeners, if they would like to sign up and get their own CGM, where do they go for that? They go to our website, which is signos.com, S-I-G-N-O-S.com. And if you want to follow us, you can do so at uh, Signos Health. And that's our handle for all of our social media. And also please check out our podcast, Body Signals, and specifically go check out the Melanie Avalon interview, which is awesome. Yes. Thank you for having me. I was so honored. That was so wonderful. Well, thank you. This has been absolutely amazing. I so, so appreciate becoming friends and all the work that you're doing. And I'm sure there are many fabulous things in store. So we'll have to stay in touch and see where it all goes. Awesome. Thanks, Melanie. Thanks, Phil. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.